You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Good morning and welcome back to week three of our miraculous sermon series where we are looking at some of the miracles in the Bible and seeing what those moments of divine intervention have to teach us about divine intervention today. Last week, Pastor Kyle talked about healing miracles and where God might be working even when we don't get the healing miracle that we prayed for. This week, we are talking about fixing those miracles, those big prayers for God to intervene and fix all the broken parts of the world. And sometimes this leads us to ask the question, how come God doesn't fix everything that's wrong? How can God allow suffering through gun violence, hunger, war, climate change, poverty? The list could go on and on. And when we ask that question, we really might be asking a couple of questions, right? The question behind the question might be, is God really all powerful? Maybe God doesn't fix these things because God can't. Or maybe the question behind the question is, does God really care? Maybe God doesn't fix these things because God doesn't want to or it's not important. And friends, having an answer for these questions is really important because not being able to answer them is one of the most often cited reasons for atheism. People come to the conclusion that God is either evil for not fixing these things and instead allowing suffering, and so why would I worship that God? Or maybe that God doesn't exist at all, and that's why nothing is fixed and why I have to fix it myself. It's important for us to wrestle with these questions, and if I'm being honest, I understand how people come to this conclusion. When I was growing up and I had a very incomplete picture of God, I too could not make sense of how God could allow such suffering in the world and not do something about it. And so I too turned to atheism. It is important that we ask these questions that that their core are questions about the character of God. How can God be good? How can God be loving and allow things to remain broken? But at the same time, these are also questions we have to ask with humility. As Kyle said last week, there's a lot of mystery surrounding knowing God. And that doesn't mean that we can't know anything about God. But it does mean that in this earthly life, in our human bodies and minds, we are never going to be able to completely understand why God does what God does. So I can't tell you exactly why God performs some miracles and not others, why Jesus fixes some things and not others, but I can tell you this. Even when Jesus was walking around on the earth in human flesh, he didn't fix everything. Even when Jesus was seeing face-to-face, experiencing for himself the brokenness of the world, he didn't fix everything. Instead, he called disciples. 
He asked people to get their heads out of the sand, to look up and look around, to see pain and suffering around them, and to join him in doing something about it. Jesus didn't wave his arms and end all the problems of the world. Instead, he called disciples. He called tradespeople and academics, those who were good with numbers and those who were good with food. Carpenters, tax collectors, fishermen, doctors, powerful men, teenage girls, sinners and saints, and everybody in between. And all of them were asked to not only care about the well-being of the whole world, but to join Jesus in doing something about it. And it wasn't just Jesus. In fact, the entire story of Scripture shows us that this is how God works on fixing things. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God performed a miracle, well, multiple miracles really, between plagues and Passover and parting the Red Sea to set them free. But first, God called Moses and his brother Aaron and asked them to participate in the miracle of liberation. God asked them to care enough about the suffering of their neighbors to stand up to Pharaoh themselves, trusting that God would multiply their offering and make a miracle out of it. When Nebuchadnezzar was an out-of-control, power-hungry king, putting idols and statues of himself all over the city and forcing people to bow down and worship them, God performed a miracle. God took Nebuchadnezzar down by turning him into a wild animal and making him eat grass. Yeah, I'm seeing some eyes get wider. Yeah, that really does happen. If you haven't read the book of Daniel in a while, I commend it to you. But before God did this to Nebuchadnezzar, he called Daniel to go and confront Nebuchadnezzar, to tell him the truth about his power-hungry tendencies. The point is, while we can't fully understand why God intervenes and fixes some things but not others, we can understand that God has always invited people to participate in the miraculous work of fixing all that is broken in the world. It is okay to ask, God, why don't you end hunger or poverty or gun violence or climate change or homophobia or anything else that is broken? But there's another question that we should be asking at the same time. God, what can I do to help? How can I partner with you? How can I participate in the miracles that you're already performing or you are about to perform to fix this? So as we dive into our scripture today, we're going to keep two questions in mind. What are our expectations of God when it comes to fix things? And what are God's expectations of us? So let's dive into our scripture passage. It came to us from Matthew chapter 14. And this chapter of scripture is one of really high highs and really low lows. So we will get to the feeding of the 5,000, which is one of the highest highs that we see of Jesus' miracles. But immediately before this, you might have caught in verse 13, the very first verse that we read, it says, when Jesus heard the news about John, what that's referring to is John the Baptist, who was just beheaded. He was just murdered for his testimony, his witness, his faithfulness to Jesus. And so immediately after that, Jesus has retreated to this isolated, remote place to grieve, probably also to seek safety, right? The disciples are with him. 
And this crowd ends up following Jesus and the disciples there. Probably the last thing they wanted to draw attention to themselves is thousands of people following them to this remote place. And the disciples, as they're looking around at all these people, they're seeing that Jesus has taken, like, compassion on them. Jesus has healed the sick in the crowds. They're also looking around and they're noticing, hmm, it is getting late. And we are far out here. And there's not, like, a Chipotle where we can mobile order some dinner for these people. So, Jesus, why don't you just send them on home so they can go get something to eat? Now, in the defense of the disciples, they had the right heart, right? They wanted to make sure the crowd got fed. They noticed that it was isolated. There was nothing nearby where they could get food, and they knew the crowd was going to have to travel to another village, to another place to be able to get food. And they knew that it was getting late. It was going to be dark soon. They were running out of time for the people to be able to safely travel to go get something to eat. But the problem is that the disciples, when seeing that there was something broken, that there was a need, that there was hunger in the crowd, they resorted to an every person for themselves kind of attitude. Send them away, Jesus, so they can buy food for themselves. But Jesus doesn't work like that. Jesus said, no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. More important to Jesus than feeding everyone, more important to Jesus than just making food appear for the crowd, is making sure that the disciples cared enough, that they loved their neighbors enough, that they were moved by the need of the crowd enough to share their own resources. The disciples had good intentions. In fact, if Jesus had asked them, do you care about hunger? They probably would have said yes. I mean, they were the ones who brought up the problem of not having food to Jesus in the first place. But their good intentions fell flat when they weren't willing to do anything for the hungry crowd except send them away. And if I'm being honest, that's the part of this passage that scares me. Because the same good intentions that the disciples had on that day are the same good intentions that live in us too. The disciples are working with multiple obstacles. We're just going to talk about three of them. Number one is scarcity. What if I don't have enough? Quite frankly, they didn't have enough. They had five loaves of bread and two fish. And there are 5,000 men plus women plus children, easily 10,000, maybe 15,000 people in this crowd that need to be fed. And I'm not going to do the math for you, but um, I don't know what portion of a loaf of bread and fish you would get with that many people, but it's not even as big as an hors d'oeuvre, okay? There was not enough food to go around. So there was scarcity in the fact that the disciples couldn't feed everyone. There was also scarcity in the sense that the disciples were probably worried, if I give away my food to feed the crowd, there's not going to be anything left to feed me. And I'm still out here in this remote place where it is getting late, and I'm not going to be able to eat either. Because the disciples didn't have enough for everyone, they weren't going to share with anyone. And that is a trap that we often fall into to this day. 
But if you think about any charitable organization, right, that is not how they make their money. They don't raise money for important causes by having one person swoop in with a $50,000 check that solves the problem. Now, if you could write a $50,000 check, please see me after the service. I have a few questions. But probably the way most of us give is we just give what we can. Ordinary people like you and me give $50, $100, $500. We give what we can. And then God takes all of that, takes each of our individual small offering and multiplies it into something so much bigger than we could ever imagine. Something that is able to do more good than any one of us could have done on our own. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that you have to show up to the charity that is dear to your heart and give them all of your money, okay? I'm not saying that you have to take that money that you need to pay your rent and go give it away, right? And Jesus isn't asking you to do that either. In Luke 21, we hear the story of a widow who puts her last two pennies in an offering box in the temple. And while Jesus praises her faith for her generosity, he also immediately turns around and scolds all the religious leaders and says, how dare you ask her to do that? How dare you ask her who only had two pennies to live on to give it away to this cause, right? That is not what is going on in this passage. What Jesus is asking Asking the disciples to do is to trust that with God, their offering of whatever they have, even if it's small, can become more than they thought possible. Another obstacle that the disciples are working with, we've mentioned several times, is that it's late in the day. And friends, I think we all struggle with the obstacle of time, having enough time to do good. I will be the first one to admit my plate is always way fuller than it should be, and I'm rushing from this to this to this to this, and I'm in my car on my way to the next thing. And then there's someone standing on the corner of the street with a cardboard sign asking for help getting a roof over their head, or a meal for the night. And what do I do? I try not to make eye contact with them because I don't have time for this. Friends, I'm not proud of that at all. But I'm confessing that to say that we've all been there. We've all run into this obstacle of I don't have time or maybe I don't have the resources. I don't have money to give them. I don't have food to give them. But to turn away from suffering, to respond like these disciples to say, I see that there's a need, but I can't help. So send them away because I don't want to be close to it. Friends, that is about the least human thing we could possibly do to someone. To reduce them down to their need and say, I don't have time to deal with that. And the third obstacle that I think feeds off of this lack of time and lack of willingness to be close is a fear of proximity, a fear of being close to suffering. And sometimes it comes from an honest place. It comes from a place of, man, what if something bad happens to me? What if I get hurt? Maybe the disciples were thinking, I would love to share my bread. I would love to share my fish. But what if I give something to one person and they end up taking all of it? Or what if I only give one loaf to one person and then there's a riot that breaks out in the crowd because other people didn't get something to eat? But most of the time when we are afraid to be close to people who are suffering, it's because we do not know them and we jump to conclusions and we let the media fill our head with these ideas that people who are in need are dangerous, that they're desperate, that they'll do anything to get what they need. 
In 2022, I had the opportunity to serve with the Feast Gathering, which is a church in Wilmington for folks who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. And I'll be honest, even as someone who has a background prior to that experience of working with folks who are unhoused or food insecure, I still had days where I felt nervous, right? I still had days where I was worried that something bad could happen. But the more time I spent with my unhoused friends by the end of the summer, the more I realized just how much we had in common. We would worship together. It was a church. We would have a sermon and scripture readings, and we would share communion. But we would also share meals together, both when we had worship and throughout the week. And I got to sit with people, to eat with them, to talk with them, to hear their stories. And man, y'all, they're just like me in so many ways. They're funny. They love to crack jokes and tease each other and me. They're picky about the food that they eat. They flirt. They fall in love. They have hope and dreams and passions and fears and they want to be able to provide for themselves and their loved ones. They are just like me in so many ways except that I had a safe and warm place to lay my head at night and they did not. Friends, this fear of proximity, this fear of being close to suffering doesn't deepen our relationship with God. In fact, it hinders it altogether. Jesus said so many times throughout the Gospels, I'm there. I'm with the people who are hurting. I am with the hungry. I am with the prisoner. I am with the people in need. And when we draw close to people who are in need, to people who are suffering, that is where we will encounter Jesus like never before. So if you ask me what the miracle is in this passage, I would actually tell you there are two miracles. One miracle we can all name, that Jesus took this tiny amount of food that would probably have barely fed 13 people, let's be real, and he multiplied it to feed thousands, right? That is so clearly a miracle. The disciples could never have made that happen by themselves without God's intervention, But I think the second miracle in this scripture passage is that the disciples cared enough to share, that they were willing to take the time. They were willing to give of their own resources. They were willing to walk around to each person, to each family, and to hand them a meal, to look them in the eyes, to say, how are you? How much food do you need? How many people are in your group? The disciples participated in the miracle by being the literal hands of Jesus, distributing the food that he made possible for all of them to eat. So let's come back to those questions we started our scripture passage with. What are our expectations of God when it comes to fixing things? And what are God's expectations of us? Friends, when we pray, when we ask God to fix something, there's at least three expectations that we can have. Number one is that God will expect us to contribute something. Because the disciples didn't have enough food for everyone, they weren't going to share with anyone. And sometimes we get stuck in this mindset. We think, well, I can't do everything, so I'm not going to do anything. 
But friends, God has always, always been calling people to give what they have. God has always been calling imperfect, broken people with limited resources, limited time, limited experience to care enough about the suffering of the world to do something about it. And the good news is that we will never be able to do everything. We will never be able to solve all of the problems of the world. Let's be real. We probably won't be able to, by ourselves, solve even just one problem. So we can just let go of that pressure. We will never be able to do everything, but we can always do something. Pick one cause, one cause that is important to you and care about it so deeply that you can't help but join Jesus in doing something about it. Pick one cause that is so important to you that you pray about it every day, that you seek out organizations and people who are doing this work. Pick one cause and donate your time, your money, your network if you know people who can help. Pick one cause and care about it deeply. Contribute whatever you can to one cause. The second expectation that we can have when we ask God to fix something is that God will do immeasurably more than we can ask for or imagine with whatever it is that we offer. Some of you may recognize this verse from Ephesians chapter 3. And it is so true of the experience that the disciples had in this feeding of the 5,000 moment. The disciples brought forth five loaves of bread. And two fish. They thought, okay, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. You told me to bring you the food that I had, so I'm going to give it to you. But never in their wildest dreams could they have imagined that that amount of food was going to feed this entire crowd. And we also got to experience a miracle like this with our project for Martin Luther King Jr. Day this past Monday. We served with Oak City Cares, an organization in Raleigh that works to provide food and resources to those who are experiencing homelessness. You probably saw in your emails when we sent out the link asking for you to donate food or donate your time. We asked you to provide food, and you all did. We asked you to donate your time either here at the Peak or in Raleigh, and you did. And we had a team of 30 people, 30 volunteers, who were here at the Peak on Monday morning helping us pack meals for those who wouldn't otherwise have one. And then we had another team of 12 volunteers who met us in Raleigh and helped us pass out those meals at Oak City Cares. And the whole week, last week, leading up to this service project on Monday, I found myself describing this as a loaves and fishes situation. And I wasn't even thinking about this sermon. It just was so true that God was doing far more than we could ask or imagine in bringing this project together. We found out pretty last minute, almost when you got the email about it, like two days before that is when we found out that Oak City Cares needed help and they asked us to participate. Then we sent out the link to sign up and the volunteer slots were gone in a day. People were emailing me, texting me, the youth were slacking me, asking if there was anything else they could do. And I had to tell them, I'm so sorry, but there's just not enough tasks for this many hands. We had way more volunteers than we even had jobs for. 
And we asked you all to provide food for 225 meals, and you brought even more than that. And so we just kept packing even more meals than that. We made at least 250 bags. We had partial bags and leftovers that we let people take extra sandwiches, extra pieces of fruit. And then when we handed out those bags at Oak City Cares, we had more food than could even be eaten that day. And the leftover food, just like in this scripture passage, the 12 extra baskets of food, that leftover food got put in the fridge so that it could feed another person on another day. Friends, God did so much more through that project than we could have asked for or imagined. And as we were handing the meals out, this was my favorite part of the whole day. You can see on the left here, we had kids handing out these bags. And our neighbors who were receiving this food were so delighted to see that it was kids leading the charge on this project. I mean, people were just lighting up. They loved talking to them. People were quoting scripture at us about what Jesus says about how you got to protect kids. They were so delighted to see that not just adults, but kids saw them They cared about them. They gave their time. They gave their resources to help meet their need. Friends, we fed more than just their bodies, but also their souls that day. God did so much more than we could have ever asked for or imagined. The third expectation that we can have when we ask God to fix something is that God will always center relationships. Friends, things will never be fixed from afar. You can't just write a check and send it off and expect that to solve all the problems of the world. Jesus could have in this moment, he's fully God and God's done it in the past, just poured down bread from the sky like he does in Exodus 16 to feed this crowd of people. But it was more important that the disciples had to be in relationship with the crowd. It was more important that the disciples had to look each hungry person in the eye They had to see them. They had to know their experience. They had to draw near to them. They could not have solved the problem of hunger from far away. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Not, oh, give me the food and I'll multiply it and I'll make sure it gets to everybody. No, you give them something to eat. You bring it to them. Friends, there are thousands of people in this crowd. They were sitting down on the grass, sure, But most of them probably couldn't even see Jesus, okay? It's not like they had a big screen like they do at a concert so that people in the nosebleeds can see what's going on on the stage, right? Most of the people probably couldn't even see Jesus. But what they could see was the disciples standing right in front of them, handing them a meal, caring about their hunger, caring that their needs were met. For most of the people in that crowd, the disciples were the face of the miracle, And friends, when we enter into relationship, when we go and when we serve people in person, face-to-face, we get to be the face of the miracle, the way that both they encounter God's grace and the way that we are changed by God's grace in that same relationship. God always, always, always centers relationship when fixing all the broken things in the world. So the next time you find yourself praying for God to fix something, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I willing to be the answer to my own prayer? Am I willing to be the answer to my own prayer? Most of the time when I find myself praying for God to fix something, 
I don't actually want to do anything about it myself. I just want to pray for God to fix it. God, why don't you end homelessness? There's all these people in my community, and I know they're suffering, and I care about it. And so I just want you to fix it. But, friends, I'm not doing a dang thing about it. What I'm really doing is just checking the box of caring about the issue, and I said my prayer. And what I'm really saying is it makes me uncomfortable to see people without homes. And so if you could just make that end and take that away, that would be great, God. If you could just get on that, that would be awesome. And if I may be so bold, how dare I, how dare we demand that God swoop in and fix things when we aren't doing a dang thing about it ourselves? How dare we sit here and wonder if God is good or if God is even real when God allows hungry people to starve when we don't have a problem allowing it ourselves? How dare we question what God is doing and why God is not working a miracle when we are not willing to hand over our own loaf of bread or our own fish, when we are not willing to be the face of the miracle? The book of James reminds us that faith without works is dead. It is not enough to say, oh, God, I believe you can do miracles. I believe you can feed these people. I believe you can fix all that is broken. If we don't actually work, if we don't actually do anything about it, we don't believe anything at all. Friends, the book of Micah tells us we have to do justice, not pray about justice. Actually do it. Actually live it. And don't get me wrong, prayer is important. Prayer is powerful. But once you've said amen, don't forget to take the next step. God has not asked us to merely pray for the change we want to see in the world, but to actually be the change we want to see in the world. The next time you find yourself praying for God to fix something, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I willing to be the answer to my own prayer? Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.